This is how we overcome the movement now. Here we come. Reaching to the world with arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we Well, welcome to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And uh, we have been having a delightful jaunt uh, since November and through Advent and into Christmas tide, looking at days in the church's year, um, some that are just noted by counting, like the Sundays in Advent, and some that are uh, public observations that are secular-ish, like Thanksgiving. And lately, we've been digging deep into our church nerdery by looking at lesser-known but important uh, festivals in the church year, like the naming of Jesus we talked about last time. Um, Where are we going today, Sarah? So today we are going to be taking a look at the baptism of our Lord. And um, so this is usually celebrated in the weeks following Christmas, but before you get into like Epiphany Tide. Um, But it's different churches will celebrate it on different Sundays, depending on when they celebrate Epiphany. Sometimes they combine it with Epiphany. Um, it all just sort of depends on what your tradition does, but it usually follows the celebrating of naming of Jesus. And then it's like the week or so after usually in there somewhere. And that kind of tracks with how the gospels is different as they are roughly follow a similar kind of chronology of you might get more stuff of baby Jesus if you're Matthew and Luke. And then there's a pretty quick jump to adult Jesus. And almost all of them have a similar sort of way of presenting adult Jesus in a scene where he is baptized by John the baptizer uh, by the River Jordan. John's gospel gives us a little bit more muddy sort of interactions with, but even has conversations between Jesus and John and sort of a handoff. Um, But they all have that same kind of time jump of we move from early Jesus right to adult Jesus. And then we're into Jesus public life and ministry. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a the baptism of Jesus we know is important and was important for the early church because it's in some way in all four or only three gospels. Three for sure. And then you get some interesting conversations between John and Jesus uh, without necessarily mentioning that John baptizes Jesus, but John definitely says, hey, this is the one I was telling you all about who was coming after me. So there's still that handoff, um, but we don't yeah. get the story of the the voice from heaven and Jesus coming up out of the waters. Yeah. So we know it's an important event and an important event that the gospel writers all wanted us to remember because there aren't many things that are all in all three or four gospels because the Gospel of John is so different than yeah. the other three Gospels mm-hmm. that, you know, grain of salt if John if John doesn't have something that the other three do, but the other three definitely do. Like, it's still really, really important. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those times that it's really important. So this is a good question then is, is why, why is it important to them? What, what is so important that three out of four gospel writers recommend you knowing about the baptism of Jesus? What, why would that have been important to them? And I would say, again, it's important because later on, Jesus even told his disciples to go out and baptize. Mm 
Okay. So this was an important event enough that Jesus is all like, hey, you know this thing that happened to me? You need to go and do that to other people. And it's um, a, a distinct marker at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a sense of this is the beginning of Jesus' public life that 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 uh, there's there's meaning to or significance there that it's sort of that official start. There's that it, there's definitely a connection between Jesus is baptized and he then gets his followers to be uh, to to baptize as a rite of initiation. Are there other things that that happen in this moment that are worth noting? This is one of those very clear moments where we see all three persons mm-hmm. of the Holy Trinity interacting with one another. Okay. Like Say more about Jesus that. is being baptized. You know, he's coming up out of the water. He hears a voice from heaven saying, you know, depending on which gospel you're looking at, this is, it's either you are my son or this is my son. And the um, Holy Spirit is descending like a dove onto Jesus. So as you noted, each one of those, each one of our gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least, have those details in common. And you get Jesus, the voice, the bird, all sort of present in this mm-hmm. moment and as distinct, but witnessing to the same thing. Yeah, that yeah, later Christian theologians would go like, Yeah, this is like what the Trinity is like. It's here we have the presence of the three persons who are all distinct but one at the same time. Um, and that claiming of Jesus as God's God's son says something about the the sort of divine status that Jesus is not just interesting religious teacher or self-help guru or prophet um, or zealot leader or something like that, but is somehow distinct and identified with God's own identity. Um, uh, and even that echoing, this is my beloved son, also echoes that um, that scene uh, back in the book of Genesis where God commands uh, Abraham sacrifice, go take your son, your only son, your beloved son. Um, th- there's this sense of like, Abraham doesn't lose a son at the end of that story, but this by the end is going to cost God a son. Um, that like there's this Jesus sort of stands in as the precious, the chosen, the even chosen is sometimes how that the, the, the word from God is translated in our, in our English uh, uh, Bibles as well. So it's a moment of Jesus being named and claimed as God's own. And I, I don't know, um, Erica, if you might say if there's differences in your piety, uh, in, in your tradition, but I would say certainly in, in my experience of the Lutheran uh, tradition, we would talk that same way about our baptism as well, that this is sort of a moment at which God claims us or names us as beloved as well. Um, and that the emphasis in baptism is on God's claim on us from speaking, yes, you are my beloved as well. Is that a piece of, of your piety, your tradition as well? I don't think quite as strongly as it is within the Lutheran church, but definitely this is an act of God claiming the person being baptized as being part of the family of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that aspect is there. Um, I've not witnessed the Lutheran baptism, but I, I know some of that language comes back in, in funerals within the Lutheran church. Yeah. And so, um, and that's why, I, that's the only reason I say maybe not quite as strongly, mm-hmm. but definitely um, I remember when I was being interviewed by uh, my district committee on ministry before I became ordained and they asked, what's the difference between it, maybe A and maybe B, one's been baptized, one's not been one is now part of God's family because God has claimed them mm-hmm. where the other 
still beloved by God, but not part of the the church and the Christian family. Mm. Um, so yes, it's definitely, um, you know, the idea that God is doing the work in that and God has claimed that person Mm -hmm. as being, um, God's own. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and honestly that for personally, for me, um, the reason why I got my first tattoo is because that word beloved and, you know, God calling Jesus, his beloved son. Yeah. Um, I went through an experience in my life where I, I struggled with that idea and I was reminded that I'm God's beloved daughter through mm-hmm. my baptism. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now that's on me permanently as a reminder. Yeah. Um, that notion of being claimed as beloved seems so important. Um, and for me, you made that, that reference to that in, in my tradition, at least, and probably in other liturgically minded traditions as well. I don't think Lutherans have a corner on this market, but yeah, in, in our funeral liturgy, there are all these connections back to the imagery of baptism, mm-hmm. even the, the casket being covered with the pall that's meant to echo the white garment of baptism or something as this sort of reminder of like, in the end, for whatever other labels or names get put on us in our lifetime, even if our surnames mm-hmm. change, if you're married or change your name, that kind of thing, that like um, being called beloved is this thing that, that holds us through, that carries us through. Um, and while there's not quite that same echo in G, we don't get a funeral service for Jesus because um, he keeps rising from the dead. Um, but um, uh, that sense of being claimed as God's owner, as God's beloved, mm-hmm. that that's a really, really powerful piece, at least in, in my tradition. And, and one thing I'm, I'm grateful about or appreciative of in the tradition that I come from. I guess I want to toss out as well for conversation um, something that is, I think, ultimately beautiful, but also a little bit mysterious or weird in the story of the baptism of Jesus, um, is that the act of being baptized, but before Christianity sort of morphs it into this moment of being claimed by God and you're welcome to the family and even death and resurrection motifs, John the baptizer, who's the guy who officiates for you, who baptizes Jesus, mm-hmm. um, has created sort of his own ritual that draws from the roots of ancient ritual purification in Judaism. So it's kind of an event that's got roots in Judaism and purification. And that would have been like a pretty repeated, you know, anytime you were ceremonially unclean, you'd be mm-hmm. ritually rewashed in the mikvah bath. You might have one in your, in your house or out back or in the neighborhood and you go sit a dip and, uh, and immerse yourself in the water. John has sort of like borrowed that imagery and created this whole new ritual thing. Um, but John announces publicly that what he intends his ritual to be for is a sign of people repenting of their sins, right? Mm-hmm. So help me out. Like the gospel writers present Jesus as the one who is without sin. Um, and Matthew had gone to great lengths in the beginning of his gospel to say Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. So he's like the one person standing in line who shouldn't need to be baptized. What's going on here? Is Jesus unaware? Uh, or is Jesus, is this like a secret way of saying Jesus really had a bunch of sins and this is how he got, what, what's going on there? If you went to John because you were repenting of sins and Jesus goes to be baptized by John. I mean, even John protests at one point, right? He's yeah. all like, why are you coming to me? You want me to baptize you when you should be the one baptizing me? Right. And um, so even John seems to be befuddled by this development 
Right, right. So clearly it's not just like us with modern eyes or ears missing mm-hmm. something. John himself thinks this is a little bit weird, as, as Matthew notes it. Yeah. And Jesus' response is a little ambiguous, right? Yeah. So Jesus responds with um, to that back and forth with John. Let it be. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Which, like, that seems to be satisfactory <laughs> to John, but I'm left scratching my head. Okay, okay. <laughs> what, what, what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness here, Jesus? You're just saying like this is this to check something off a checklist? Is this um, what, what, what does that mean? So, since we have in the Gospel of Luke that John the Baptist is the slightly older cousin of Jesus. I always have to just imagine that this was Jesus saying, just get on with it. Just do it. Stop arguing. Just do it. Uh And, you know, John the Baptist being all like, all right, fine. I guess if it gets you off my back. Yeah. (laughs) I I wonder if there, there aren't two reasons for Jesus's baptism because he is the sinless son of God. Um, First and foremost, like we mentioned earlier, it's the, public beginning of his ministry uh-huh. and so like this is his kind of presenting himself to the public as, as the messiah but also because of his baptism we get that trinitarian moment that we talked mm-hmm. about earlier um where we get to see all three persons of the trinity interacting for the first time in scripture clearly together yeah you know we, we see god we see the spirit we see jesus at different points you know and we see god and the spirit working together and we see jesus and but like we get all three of them together in this moment and, and maybe some of that righteousness is that to show that and make that very clear um to those who are witnesses to it so that 30 years later whatever when the gospels are written we have that information so let me let me ask this because I, I I get that those are important things and it's good to have a moment where the three persons of the Trinity appear or it's good to have the the public beginning or the declaration this is my son the beloved mm-hmm. but is there any reason that had to happen at the riverbank being bat like could that not have happened at the town square could that not have happened in the synagogue is why why is it that mm. Jesus chooses to be baptized for this because like nobody like you don't get the sense other people like started their public careers by getting baptized by John nobody says I'm gonna start a small business I should get in line and be baptized by John to publicly open my business but mm-hmm. like for Jesus this is the the beginning of his public ministry or public presence or public persona um and I guess, I guess that that's the thing that, that's got me hung up there. There doesn't seem any reason why it has to be that if there's going to be a claiming moment and a voice of God, it has to be being baptized, but that's, that's what we get. Is there a reason for it? Or is it just them? Eh, just telling you what happened. Right. And John almost certainly didn't use the language of I baptize you in the name of the father, the son, right, and the Holy right, spirit, right. Mm-hmm. Right. like probably didn't use that language right um but there is that sense though that jesus is we are connected to jesus's baptism and like so that's another reason i think that it was important Mm -hmm. that jesus was baptized because we were also baptized yeah and at least in the lutheran tradition our funeral liturgy has like this really beautiful language which i think might be taken from romans comes from romans six yeah about if yeah, been... Romans six about you know how we were baptized into Jesus's baptism, and therefore 
also okay i don't remember it off the top of my head but it's beautiful you probably yeah. know we've been baptized because we've been baptized into his death we will also be raised in his resurrection that kind of thing we might also live a new life yeah it's it's yeah. Roman, it's roman six stuff yeah, and and there paul is using the imagery of baptism and is saying well yeah we've been baptized we've been joined into jesus death and therefore if jesus rose we'll be raised as well and i i guess I get that as well. By the time you get 30 years down the road, the Christian community is congealing around those ritual moments of baptism. And they're going, yeah, well, Jesus is baptized, so we're baptized. I guess the thing that befuddles me is back at the zero point, back when Jesus is actually baptized, um, is all this set up in advance so that it will mean something to later Christians? Is there something else going on? Um, like if, if you would have been there and asked Jesus, why did you do this? Would he say, well, 30 years from now, it's going to be important to my followers. Or is there something going on for him in that moment that seems important? So, um, I read an article a while back that suggests that John the baptizer might have been connected to the community at Qumran. Okay. Like when Qumran, if you don't know, was this community that, um, they had some caves and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls there. Mm -hmm. um, so like they they were doing things around the first century and then for probably around the time that Rome came in and like sacked Jerusalem, they kind of hid all of their important documents in caves and then they abandoned that place and those documents were lost until just recently, like the 1980s, they were found and were in excellent condition because they were in a place that preserved them essentially but um archaeology has kind of determined that the the community at Qumran had places for community bath like not uh, not community uh ritual bathing yeah. and mm -hmm. cleansing and so there's um a lot of speculation that John the Baptist um, had connections to this community and that's kind of where he got his baptism and baptism equals repentance mm -hmm. mindset because yeah. that was very similar to things around written in Qumran was a very similar message that John the Baptist had and Jesus then continues that dialogue that teaching of wanting people to repent to turn back to god and um so like I, you could even make that argument of like jesus even if it's just by one step removed was connected to the community at qumran who had this message of repentance and ritual cleansing to as part of that repentance as a physical thing that you do to show that you are repenting and turning back to god that seems to be an interesting progression between like we talked before about how even the idea of that sort of ritual immersion and cleansing has probably even earlier roots in the traditional rituals of cleansing for ceremonial mm -hmm. cleanness in the Torah. And there it's less about morality. It's more like, you know, oh, you touch something dead. Now you're unclean, but you go through the ritual and you're clean again. And then at some point in Judaism, it, it takes on that sort of moralistic view of the cleansing is I'm turning away from wickedness. And so it's not just I touch something dead or something unkosher, but now I'm turning away from sin or badness and I'm turning towards something good. And the cleansing, the, the ritual bath becomes that sort of symbolic. I'm cleansing myself of the badness, the sin, the whatever. Um, so again, yeah, that, that all makes sense. That certainly stands in the background. I guess what I'm wondering is to push that then, 
if the gospel writers are intent on presenting Jesus as one who doesn't need redemption or forgiveness or repentance, and it seems to me pretty clear, at, at least at least all four of them imply that, if not explicitly say it, um, why is Jesus doing this for himself? Why doesn't he say, you all should get baptized, but I don't need it, so I, I will abdicate, but I'll, I'll forego, but you all, should. why does Jesus get baptized, not just endorse it for others? As, as I'm reading through, especially Matthew and Mark's um, recordings of this, when when John is preaching out in the wilderness before Jesus comes up to him, he says, you know, I baptize you with water, but one's coming after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that has something, you know, that baptism in the Holy Spirit has something to do with it. What that is, I don't know. Um because that that's a, that's a terminology that gets really convoluted in the church this you know today sure sure, sure. um so i don't know if that like the idea that okay jesus had his water baptism so then now he can go and baptize you know through the holy spirit and by fire or i i don't know i'm just throwing something out there as, as i'm rereading these passages and that's just sticking out to me um but Again, I, I don't know where where that goes, what that means, and if yeah. that helps answer your question, Steve. Especially bodies of water. Go ahead, sir. I I'm still thinking about that repentance being turning back to God. And if you know, following that train of thought is Jesus doing this symbolic ritualistic cleansing as a showing of I am turning now towards God and towards the path that God has laid out for me. Okay. If he didn't find that important for himself of saying, okay, I am now done with this secular life of taking care of my family, doing the family business, et cetera, et cetera. And now I am turning back to God and the path that God has laid out for me. And now I'm going to do this. And so as just a like very clear divide of I'm now on this path. It could be more a saying yes rather than a saying no to. It could be a in this moment, Jesus is saying yes to the way of God. It's not that he's got a long list of sins he's got to repent of, but the Jesus saying loud and clear, I'm going to intentionally go on the path God is calling me toward. And that might then follow because immediately after this jesus has that temptation story in the wilderness and he does say sort of rather clearly no to the way of evil no to the way of the tempter and like those two might go together you look like you have a thought erica but then does that mean that jesus life for the first 30 years wasn't following the path that god had for him well right see i i don't i don't know that that's i i think that's part of what makes it difficult is that we don't get the sense of jesus as uh sinner turned good right it's not like jesus like i once was lost but now i'm found um but there is maybe a a definitive point at jesus life where he says now it's beginning i used to be only just sort of joseph son of or jesus son of joseph you know the builder from nazareth Mm -hmm. and now i'm going on this particular way of life and this path that's going to mean i'm laying down my life at the end of this and knowing that the the trouble the holy trouble he's going to cause is going to cost him his life rather than this is jesus saying i'm willing to let go of having the 2.5 kids in the white picket fence and the two chariot garage um that maybe it's not saying no to sin, but like being willing to let go of other courses of his life that he could have had. 
Yeah, because the 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 scene of boy Jesus in the temple, right? Twelve year old Jesus has wandered away from mm-hmm. Mary and Joseph in the party that went up from their town to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary and Joseph finally find him after days of searching in the temple, and he is teaching the rabbis. And they pull him out, and and they're all like rebuke him for wandering away right because this is a 12 year old boy he's on the cusp of manhood um and you know they rebuke him and he he goes didn't you know where i would be that i would be in my father's house you know essentially doing my father's work right yeah and um but they convince him to come home with them and to me that always seems like the moment of jesus he's like yeah I'm 12. I'm ready for my bar mitzvah. I'm ready to be a man. I'm ready to do the work that God has laid out for me. Mm -hmm. And it's Mary and Joseph who's saying, no, not yet. Like Mm -hmm. we, you still need to be with us. You still need to do this work first. And it's, so it's not necessarily a sinful life. It's just, I think at that moment when Jesus was 12, he was ready to do this ministry, mm. but Mary and Joseph weren't. And it may be that at some point Jesus has to decide and it becomes clear. You can't have both the life chasing the Galilean dream and going after the life God has called him to that. He me- he mm. needs to be able to let go of. I'm not going to have that life that uh, mom and dad might've wished for me. It's going to be a different path for me. And to say, yes, it it's not good versus evil, but maybe the best versus less than, you know, like, nope, this yeah. is the path I'm called toward. And that means being able to let go of other things. It, it, it almost reminds me of the thought experiment in the book and the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, which imagines Jesus getting off the cross and then going and living a life and getting married to Mary Magdalene and having kids and all this sort of thing. And it's not presented like that's evil or wicked, but it's like, no, this isn't your calling. You're supposed to be the one who lays down his life. And it flashes back and it turns out it's all been a dream in his head and he's there on the cross and continues to lay down his life on the cross. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, um, but um, that, like, that idea that throughout Jesus' whole life, there had to be this constant... I don't want to say temptation because that makes it sound like it's sinful, but like the constant question of will you walk away from the path you're called to uh, and just sort of live the life that is comfortable for you. And Jesus consistently, he's the one for other people. He's willing to lay down his life for other people, not just when he's dying, but the way he lives and chooses to, you know, go hang out with all the riffraff and to have big meals, like all things Jesus does is not, here's my agenda, but living into what God's agenda is for him. I guess, and I'm I'm going to toss this out as what is kind of a half-formed thought, but has become one of my default interpretations of this story. And I will toss it out that you may either throw rocks at me for heresy or tell me if it seems like it might hold water. Um, to me, this feels a lot like a reverse Spartacus. Um, that you know, that that moment in the the classic movie Spartacus, where um, the the soldiers are come to arrest the leader of the slave rebellion, Spartacus, and they go, "Which one of you is Spartacus?" and Spartacus stands up, but then so does everybody else. I'm like, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. Like they all stand up to uh, identify so that he won't get in trouble. Turns out they all get crucified. It's a very sad story. Um, but um, that Jesus sort of likes, it's an act of solidarity that for Jesus to be baptized is as the one person who doesn't need it is his identification with a world full of people who do. And so in a sense, 
uh, it's Jesus saying, yeah, I'm casting my lot with these people. I'm, I'm, I'm here for them on their behalf. So it's not that I've got my list of sins that I need to repent of, but that I'm here on their behalf as the one who identifies with humanity. Um, and that this is Jesus way of, of saving. It's not, it's, it's to be with us among us as one of us, not like holding his nose going, Ooh, you stinky sinners. I don't want to have anything to do with you, but always being with us. So like, in a sense, like this is a foreshadowing of the way Jesus goes and hangs out with the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes rather than saying, Oh, you're so terrible. I won't associate with you until you've changed your lives. But it's Jesus going to their houses and throwing parties with them. It's Jesus being with us and identifying with us rather than a ritual that he needs for his sake. So let me toss that out. What, what do you think? Hold water. Are you getting your rocks ready? I, I think that helps kind of close that gap that we were talking about earlier about, you know, will this mean, will this only mean something 30 years later? Mm-hmm. You know, that idea that Jesus is standing in our place, you know, um, not because he needs to, but just so that he can be a part of us. Mm-hmm. And then so 30 years later, when Paul is writing in Romans, you know, to the church in Rome about being baptized with Jesus, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, that's a little bit of that closing of that gap of the question we had earlier. To me, this feels very, very much like an outworking of that line. I, I know I've, I've said before in this, in, in our, in our conversations uh, from, from William Willimon, um, Uh, a Methodist writer who says that God refuses to be God without us. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, that feels very much like there Willimon is is drunk deeply from Karl Barth. And I would say as well, that feels very, very in the Lutheran tradition, very much Bonhoeffer's language of God is always God for us in Jesus. And that there's no abstract sense of God or just God as like the greatest, you know, the, the absolute good or the highest or the, some some abstract concept but god always chooses to be god with us and god for us and that jesus is the face of that so that in in some sense every action of jesus is a demonstration of god choosing to be with us rather than without us and god's refusal Mm -hmm. to exist or to to be god without being for us and on our side um even when we're our own worst enemy that god refuses to be our enemy but to be on our side i I think just one thing in this is more particularly towards our baptism, but it's also, I think, true in Jesus's baptism. We aren't the ones that do the work. Mm-hmm. It is God doing the work. Um, so regardless of who does the baptizing, who is being baptized, this is God putting his claim on God's people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and not us putting our claim on god yeah yeah so it's less about who wants to volunteer for jesus and who's ready for jesus to claim you huh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that emphasis i think is what makes again this is the lutheran and like is what makes those sacramental moments good news as opposed to did we do the ritual right you know and i think so much about uh in in luther's day where the the focus or the worry or the concern was so much about the practice and and the performance of the the sacrament of the altar of holy communion and so much of the prevalent thinking in his day was we have to do this right so that we can properly Mm re-sacrifice jesus you know, mm-hmm. to get our sins forgiven again. Um, and Luther sort of turns things around. No, 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 this has always been God's gift toward us. This is always God's action on our behalf. And once we're clear about that, that's what makes this 
a, a good news moment and not, uh oh, did I really believe it in my heart well enough when I said I want to come to Jesus? Or did I really give all my heart to Jesus? Did I pray the words? It's, it's, it's less about that and more about being given something. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why to me that the language uh, that so often gets talked about with baptism, about being born again or born from above or born anew, like that comes out of John three with the conversation with Nicodemus, that feels to me instructive in a way that sometimes gets ignored. Like when I was born the first time, I didn't do any of the work. Like that's all the points go to my mom and maybe some partial credit to doctors and nurses. Um, But like I brought zero effort to that. I received that as a gift. So if Jesus uses that image or that metaphor about being brought into the kingdom of God is like being born all over again. It can't be about you had to start, the, you, you had to initiate it, you had to make it happen, you had to bring your effort or your strength. It's got to be a gift if the image is like being born, because um, I didn't bring any effort to that. I that was handed to me as a gift as well. And that's why both of our denominations will do infant baptisms. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't have to bring anything to the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. N- nothing against adult baptisms. We do those too. Sure. Um, but, you know, part of the reason uh, I know, at least for my denomination, I can't speak for yours, um, that we do infant baptism is because of the prevenient grace of God working before we even are aware of it. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I may have mentioned this book before too, but I think the best book I ever read about baptism was, uh, that sounds the most Lutheran to me is actually by United Methodist William Willimon. Uh, <laughs> it's his book, uh, remember who you are. And it's that sense of baptism about being identity. And, and again, the mm-hmm. emphasis on God is the one who gives us this new identity. Um, and so, yeah, that this is about God's work on us. So we invite you to further conversations uh, around our imaginary table and our microphones uh, here on Crazy Faith Talk next time. See you then. See y'all. Bye.